You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Amen. Well, it's still good to get into the Word of God today, even if we aren't able to be together as a church family. If you're tuning in with us, maybe for the first time, or maybe if you just haven't been with us throughout this series, we're just continuing on in our series on Lent. Uh, Even in the difficult times, we believe the Word of God needs to continue to be proclaimed, so that's what we will continue to do as long as we are able to do so. If you have a Bible with you, please go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. One of the things that we've been saying throughout this series is we want to walk through the last days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion to get a better understanding of who he is, a better knowledge of him. And specifically, we've been trying to explore some of the, the paradoxes of the character of Jesus. Things about him, specific, especially we focused on in this series, his emotional life, but, but specifically we've been looking at things about him that people might struggle to believe. Maybe two truths about Jesus that might seem to be at the opposite ends of his spectrum of his character, but yet beautifully come together to make up exactly who our Lord and Savior is. Today I want to proclaim to you Jesus' safe haven and stumbling block. Jesus' safe haven and stumbling block. In Matthew chapter 21, one of the verses that we won't get to today, Jesus literally refers to himself as a stumbling block. That there are some people who, them coming to salvation, the nature of who Jesus is, actually gets in their way. That there are things about Jesus that they aren't willing to accept, and something specifically about him being Savior, that Jesus says is a stumbling block to some. And that very same thing about him also causes him to be a safe haven for others. We want to know who Jesus is as he reveals himself in the scriptures, specifically that he is a safe haven and a stumbling block. We'll be looking at Holy Tuesday today in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is back in the temple again If you're familiar, just the day before he was in the temple, he was causing a lot of disruption in what was going on within the temple. Well, he's back in the temple again, and he is teaching, and he has another encounter with the religious leaders of his day. As we look into this encounter, I want us to pay very close attention to who are the people that see Jesus as a safe haven? What are they like? How can we be more like them? And also, who are the people that see him more as a stumbling block? And how do we seek to not be like them and not display the characteristics that they have? This is the second day they've seen Jesus in the temple. We'll pick it up, Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 25, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? 
And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did, not, did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So let me summarize. I don't know how many of you were like me and you grew up playing sports in the backyard of somebody's house. Maybe it was your house, maybe it was a family member's house, wherever it was. Well, when you're coming up with your game plan, you did what we call just a huddle where you bring everybody in. So this is what the religious leaders of Jesus' day is, are doing at this time when Jesus confronts them with the question. So they go to Jesus. They're trying to trip him up like they always do and say, hey, who gave you authority to teach in the temple the way that you're teaching? And Jesus says, okay, I'll answer that if you answer my question. And he asked them, by whose authority did John the Baptist baptize people? And so they didn't know how to answer because they are afraid of the crowds. And they knew that the crowds believed in John the Baptist. So they just brought it in and they was like, okay, all right, fellas, bring it in, bring it in, bring it in. Okay, if we say John the Baptist got his authority from God, then he's going to ask us, why didn't we listen to John? That's a good point. But if we say... John the Baptist did not get his authority from God, then we have problems because we're afraid of the people and what they might say because they believe in John. So they just responded to Jesus, we don't know. Jesus, that's our answer, we don't know. And Jesus tells them, well, then I'm not going to tell you where I get my authority from either. He knows that they can't really answer about John the Baptist because they disagree with the people, but yet they fear the people. So Jesus doesn't just bring up John the Baptist to silence them. Jesus brings up John the Baptist to make another point that we're going to see as we keep moving through Jesus's discourse with them. Let's pick up at verse 28, still in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus responds to them with a parable. Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? So Jesus says, okay, there's a man that tells his two sons to go work in the vineyard. One of them says, yeah, yeah, I'll go in the vineyard and doesn't do it. And one says, no, 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 I'm not going to go in the vineyard, but actually doesn't. And Jesus asked him, which one actually did right? Which one actually did the will of the Father? And so they responded to him, as we continue on in verse 31, they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John, referring back to John the Baptist, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. So just, just so we're clear before we get into everything that Jesus is trying to say with this parable, they are afraid to say that they don't believe in John the Baptist, and that's why they didn't respond to Jesus. And Jesus comes out and saying, John the Baptist was telling you to repent, and you didn't believe them. So the very thing that they were afraid to have brought before the people, Jesus go ahead, goes ahead and exposes that, that they didn't believe that John the Baptist. Let's pick back up again, verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So Jesus is telling the religious leaders of his day, those who would have known the Bible backwards and forwards, 
those who would have been able to communicate theology from the Bible fairly well, that the tax collectors, the prostitutes, are entering the kingdom of God before them. Tell you a little bit about the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Tax collectors, they were traitors against the people of God. The Roman Empire was oppressing the people of God, and part of the way that they would do that is they would set up tax collectors. They would hire uh, Jewish people to be tax collectors and, and enforce harsh taxes on their own people. And oftentimes, the tax collectors were actually able to increase the taxes that they enforced on people so that they could have a little bit extra for themselves on the end. Right, so the people of God, as we talked about earlier in this series, they were extremely angry with the Roman Empire, but they were perhaps even angrier with the Jewish tax collectors that basically sold out to the Roman Empire so that they could increase their own profits. The tax collectors, they were hated, they were looked down on, they were seen as working for the enemy. They were even enforcing these taxes on their own families oftentimes. They were marginalized. They were discarded by the Jewish people. They weren't desired for fellowship. And obviously the prostitutes are those who by their way of life lived in opposition to God's design and God's plan. And so you have the religious leaders of this time. They would have been looking down very specifically on these groups of people. And Jesus is saying they actually listened to John the Baptist. They actually turned away from sin. They actually walked in repentance. And the religious leaders represent in the parable, they are the son that said, yeah, yeah, I'll go and do what you say, but actually never listened to God and actually never followed him. And, these, and the tax collectors and the sinners are the ones that initially said, no, I'm not going to follow God. But actually, when John the Baptist came and called them to repent, they actually turned to God and did what the Father had called them to do. One thing I believe to be helpful in understanding what Jesus is getting at here is making sure we have a, a good big picture understanding on the different characters and character groupings in the Bible. So I brought this up a few weeks ago, I believe, when I was preaching on Palm Sunday, and I talked about a few of the character groupings and how they responded to Jesus. And my understanding of the Gospels is the whole narrative of the Gospel plays out based on how these different groups of people respond to Jesus. That, that's a primary narrative of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I want to, and I want to introduce a new character grouping today that I didn't bring up when I preached on Palm Sunday. So the first one, I'll hit the, well, actually three of them I'll hit that I've already explained. The first one is the disciples. So they're not perfect, but they usually stick with Jesus. They're generally, the 12 disciples are generally trying to follow Jesus, trying to walk with him. They want to know more about who he is. They have a mixture of faith and doubt and understanding versus misunderstanding. They're not perfect by any means, but in general, they're trying to follow Jesus. They're trying to be with him. So you have the disciples, and then you have the crowds, who I said before, are, they're, they're back and forth. They're easily swayed. Depending on what Jesus is doing, depends on what the Pharisees and the religious leaders are saying, depending on whether or not Jesus just worked a miracle, they're kind of back and forth with whether or not they're actually following Jesus. They're, they're less committed to him personally and just kind of going with the trends at the time, and depending on how, how the wind is blowing that day. You also have the religious leaders, they're just adamantly against Jesus. They don't want any part of him. They see Jesus primarily as a threat. They're very self-righteous, and obviously they play a role in this specific story. But there's also a group of people in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who actually serve as the best example of followers of Jesus. There's a group 
that more often than not, I would say 90 plus percent of the time, they're the ones that Jesus is saving. They're the ones that are actually accepting Jesus. They're the ones that's actually being forgiven. There's a group that's actually a model for us to follow. This fourth group that I want to bring out or point out today that understand Jesus extremely well are a group that I refer to as the desperate. The desperate. Those who understand themselves to be in a desperate situation are the ones that tend to understand Jesus more fully. They're the ones whose faith gets complimented by Jesus the most. They're the ones whom whom he seems to move towards, and they seem to move towards him, and and Jesus seems to to save them and grant them whatever they're asking of him, those who who understand themselves to be in a desperate situation. A few examples. You don't have to turn there. I'll just get through. I'll move through these fairly quickly. In John chapter, chapter 4, there's a nobleman whose son is dying. His son has a fever. They can't get it down. The man hears that Jesus is in town. So he goes to Jesus. He leaves his sick son. He goes to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal his son. He's in a desperate situation because his child is dying, and Jesus heals this man's son. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals a, a paralytic, a man who is paralyzed. This man is likely not able to work and provide for himself. He's likely reliant on the help and services of others. There's no welfare program at this time. There's no government assistance for those who are unable to work. There's no disability at this time. This man is completely reliant on the kindness of strangers and some of some people who know him bring him to Jesus, but the house that Jesus is in is completely full because Jesus is preaching and the house is packed. They can't even get this man in the door so that he can be healed by Jesus. So they go on top of the roof, cut a hole in the roof, and let the man down on the floor in front of Jesus. And Jesus forgives this man's sin and heals him. He was in a desperate situation, and his, the people, his friends that brought him to Jesus responded to his desperation, and this man was healed and forgiven. In Luke chapter 5, there's a leper that Jesus touches and makes him clean Lepers at this time were, were, were outcasts. They were seen as unclean. People wouldn't fellowship with them. People would not touch them with fear that, that they will become unclean themselves. They carried great shame and no hope of being able to be a functioning member of society unless Jesus heals this man. Jesus reaches out, touches him, and heals this man who was in a desperate situation. Same thing with the woman who, was, who had an issue of blood, a discharge of blood. Jesus was on the move to go and heal somebody else. There's this crowd that's walking with Jesus. And you know how the crowds are. They want to see Jesus work a miracle. So they're walking with Jesus. This woman who is discharging blood has been doing so for 12 years. She's gone to doctors. She spent everything that she had on these doctors. And her condition did nothing but get worse. So she presses through the crowd to get to Jesus, touches his garment, and she is made whole from her desperate situation. She's literally discharging blood, but she's pushing through people because she doesn't care because she needs healing from Jesus. She understood the desperation of her situation. There's another woman in Luke chapter 7. She's called a sinner. She's called a a woman of the city. She's likely a prostitute. Jesus is reclining at the table with some people, with some religious leaders at that time. She goes to Jesus, stands over his feet, and just starts weeping. She's so broken. She's so desperate. For Jesus, that she weeps and her tears wet his feet, and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. She pours out she pours out ointment onto 
his feet and her sins are forgiven. She approaches Jesus with desperation. Jesus even makes the point when he's explaining what just happened to the Pharisees that were there. He makes the point that because this woman has forgiven much, she loves much. There's another man by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. Zacchaeus does something that shows his desperation, that if you're not familiar with the times, you might have missed it. He can't see Jesus because he's a, a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. So he climbed up in a tree. This would have been a shameful thing for a man to do. He was so desperate just to see Jesus that he's going to do this shameful thing. He's going to climb up in this tree. You have to understand, Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. He was leading the charge and oppressing the people of God, his own people. He would have been socially outcast. People would have hated Zacchaeus. They would have hated him. They wouldn't have been able to believe and understand how he would do the things that he was doing. Zacchaeus hears Jesus is coming to town. He climbs up on the tree, sees Jesus. Jesus notices this act by Zacchaeus, and he tells Zacchaeus to get down. Get down. I'm coming to your house Jesus eventually announces that salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was in a desperate situation. He takes desperate measures to see Jesus, and his sins are forgiven. There's another category that I want us to focus on today, those that are desperate for Jesus. They are the ones who often are healed. They are the ones that that experience the salvation that they are after. Getting back to our primary passage of the day, why are the tax collectors and the sinners entering the kingdom of God before the spiritually elite? Why is that so often the case? Why are the ones that initially said that they wouldn't follow God actually the ones that are following him, while the ones that originally said they are following God are not doing so? Why are the ones that are engaged in sin as a lifestyle entering the kingdom of God faster than those who even worked in the temple of God? Why is this the case? Jesus says it better than I ever could in Luke chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. Jesus says, and the, well, sorry, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're asking Jesus. They're noticing the same thing. Why are you always around the sinful people? Why are you always around the tax collectors? Why are you always around the sinners? Why are you eating and drinking with them? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The tax collectors and the sinners knew their spiritual condition. If you look at verses 31 and 32, you see that Jesus is drawing attention to something that they understand, physical sickness, to make a point about something that they clearly don't understand, which is spiritual sickness. He's letting them know that he's the spiritual doctor and physician, and the tax collectors and sinners are the ones that have figured out that they're spiritually sick, so they are drawn to him, and he is drawn to them. He's a safe haven for the spiritually sick. He's a safe haven for sinners, for those who are aware of how desperate their sinful condition is. They are drawn to him, and he is drawn to them. 
the tax collectors and the sinners in the Gospels generally fit into the category of those who are in a desperate situation. Those with physical ailments that I pointed out a little bit earlier, they came to Jesus because they were desperate with physical, for physical healing. Those who understood that spiritually they were in a desperate situation came to Jesus for spiritual healing. And they were loving Jesus and they were entering the kingdom ahead of those who could quote the Bible backwards and forwards and were seen as a spiritually elite. This next point, it could be a whole sermon in and of itself, and I don't have time to go into it fully, but I do feel a need to warn some of us that if our theological education about God doesn't lead us to a realization of our desperation for God, we are doing theology wrong. If learning about God and studying the Bible doesn't lead us to seek God like a hungry woman or a hungry man seeks food, or it doesn't lead us to to seek God like a thirsty woman or a thirsty man would seek water, if it doesn't lead us to seek God the way a dying person would seek medical care, then our studying of the Bible, we got it wrong. And I don't care how many scriptures you can quote. I I don't care how many facts about God you can state. I don't care how many theologians you can quote. If your theology isn't leading you to a point of seeking God desperately, you're doing theology wrong. You're pursuing understanding of God wrong. If all your theological learning doesn't lead you to seek him as the only one who can save you from a hopeless, desperate situation, then you really don't know what it means that he's the savior. He's a savior. He's not primarily someone that's coming to give some random general blessings to people. He comes to be a savior. The only people that need a savior are people who are in a hopeless situation that won't be able to make it unless they find a savior. He is a savior. This is who he is. This is what he does. People who are well don't fervently seek a doctor. People who think they are desperately spiritually sick and lacking are the ones that fervently seek Jesus as they should. Those that don't understand this about themselves, that don't see themselves in a spiritually desperate situation, they might seek Jesus for stuff, they might seek Jesus for blessings, but they don't seek him for him because he comes to be the cure. He comes to be the physician. He's the savior. Many people consider the Sermon on the Mount to be Jesus' most famous sermon. It's certainly the first extended sermon that we have from him. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we see the very first words of this sermon as Jesus begins his public ministry. In Matthew 5, verse 3, he writes, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That word blessed means to be, to be happy, maybe to be content, to be joyful, or the poor in spirit. What Jesus explains here communicates to us why the religious leaders see Jesus as a stumbling block. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is to be spiritually lacking. It's to live with enough humility to understand that spiritually we really aren't all that great in and of ourselves. It's to understand that spiritually we're not bringing a lot to the table to God. It's to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is the opposite of being self-righteous. 
the character group in the Gospels that often moves towards Jesus and receives his healing and his blessing and his salvation the most are those who understand that they don't have what they need in and of themselves in order for them to be made right. The poor in spirit are those who are spiritually needy. And those that often reject Jesus and end up killing him are those who are self-righteous and are self-reliant and think they're actually pretty good on their own. Matter of fact, they think they'd be better off without Jesus. I'm pretty good doing my thing. Jesus is more of a threat to me than anything else. He's more of a hindrance to me than anything else. They're extremely self-righteous and extremely self-reliant. These religious leaders, they have more theological education, but the tax collectors and the sinners have more spiritual desperation. Jesus goes on in this chapter to describe himself, as I said earlier, as a stumbling block. And he's a stumbling block to those who consider themselves to be good enough on their own. He's a stumbling block. He's in their way to them actually experiencing what they think they want outside of him. He gets in the way of those that think that their path of salvation is about how good they are or how hard they try or what they can do on their own. And he's a safe haven for those who are poor in spirit, those who are desperate, those who are fully aware that they need someone to come and save them because they are not enough on their own to be made right with God. The religious leaders are full of self-reliance and self-righteousness. The tax collectors and sinners are full of humility and awareness of their spiritual sickness. Which one are you the most like? Which one am I most like? I talked last week about our need to hate our sin the way that God does. But maybe even before we can do that, we need to be firmly reminded that we are all sinners. That all of us are sinful. We all sin over and over again. We, we, we do things that we tell others not to do. We lie to get ourselves out of difficult and unpreferred situations. We mistreat and we, we act unlovingly towards others, even those we truly love. We lust after others. We value our possessions and our comfort more than we care about the spiritual and physical well-being of those around us. We look down on others as if we are superior to them just because they sin differently from the way that we do. We all sin over and over and over again. But that's not even the full problem when it comes to our sin. It's not just the fact that we sin. It's not, it's not that we sin over and over again that makes us sinners. But we sin over and over again because we are sinners. Because outside of Christ, in and of ourselves, we are born into sin. This is how it's written in the 51st Psalm, verse 5, as David acknowledges his sin in this psalm of repentance. He writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. He traces his sinful nature back to before birth. That our sinful nature was passed down to us from our first ancestors. The Bible often refers to the sinful nature as our flesh. It refers to it as the old self that we are called to put off. We are bent towards sin. We don't just, you, you don't just sin primarily because you have some different preferences from God. It's not just that God desires this and you just happen to randomly 
disagree with God and prefer something that God doesn't prefer. No, that's not the issue underneath your sin. The issue underneath your sin is that deep down to your core, passed down to you from your first ancestors, is a desire to rebel against the creator of the universe. That is in each of us. We have a desire to rebel against God. The Apostle Paul tells us that our hearts are hostile towards God, that we have a natural tendency to turn away from him. We are drawn towards rebelling against his supreme authority. And you can see this maybe more than anywhere else in our motivations. So even when we do good things, oftentimes we do them for wrong motivations. Oftentimes we serve people and we do things that are loving to people because we want them to think highly of us. Or maybe even worse, we do things that are kind to people because we want other people to think highly of us. This sinful nature affects our misdeeds and our deeds that are good when we notice oftentimes our sinful nature. All of us are sinful. We try to to deny this reality oftentimes by maybe comparing ourselves to others. We look at others and we're not as bad as they are. We don't do the things that those people do right? We're not the type of Christians that do what those Christians over there do. The things that that they do, I can't believe Christians would do that, right? I can't believe anybody that claims the name of Christ would do that specific thing that that Christian or those Christians over there do. We want to look down on others because it helps us to puff ourselves up. We find people that we can look down on and we say, at least we're not as bad as them. This type of comparison is at war with this desire that we ought to have to be poor in spirit. And this is a reality that we really must come to terms with. And and honestly, being poor in in spirit is incredibly beneficial to us. Incredibly beneficial. Realizing how sinful we actually are has the ability to help crush a sense of entitlement within us that ultimately often leads to us being disappointed and being angry and being bitter towards God. So there are many of us, there are many of us who believe, God, I've been serving you. I've been following you. I did this. I've sacrificed these things. I've sacrificed this amount of money. I've sacrificed these relationships. I've sacrificed these desires and urges that I have. I don't understand why you haven't given me this thing that I've been wanting. I've been good. You should at least give me this. I should at least have this. I served you. I worshiped you. And you still haven't given me this thing that I want. God, and for some people, it goes to the point of, God, what's the point of me even continuing to serve you if I'm not going to get this? Why even continue to serve you as if if our relationship with God is us bringing our spiritual riches to him and our spiritual accomplishments to God so that he can see them and say, okay, now you're worthy of this blessing. That's not how relationship with God works. So oftentimes we get angry with God. We get bitterment or bitter, excuse me, towards God. So then maybe we start to turn away from God. Or maybe we just become a little bit less committed to the things of God. Or maybe we remain committed because we like to follow the rules, but it's now a begrudging, joyless commitment to God. Where I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to do, God, but I don't see you doing what I'm expecting you to do for me. There's no heart in it. There's no joy because you feel like God is, is shortchanging you. 
That is not the heart posture of one who is poor in spirit. Those that are poor in spirit know that they deserve the judgment of God for their sins. And so anything that God gives them that is greater than that is reason to be grateful. It's reason to praise God. It's reason to worship God. The person that knows that they are desperately sinful by their very nature and that they have sinned against God over and over again, and God just continues to show them mercy over and over and over again, has reason to be grateful to God every day of their lives. A few weeks ago, I got an email from a woman who was just reaching out to the church, and she was asking uh, if we were able to give her food. Her and her family were in need of, of food. And at that time, I was just trying to think of different places I knew of around town and I was able to get in contact with somebody that knew of a few churches that were doing feeding, and I emailed her that. And then someone actually emailed me something from the United Way, which was an, a pretty updated list of all the feeding services in Columbia, all the places you can go for your family to be able to be fed, and when they did the feeding and all of that. And she responded in the email. It wasn't super long, but it, did, it just expressed a deep gratitude that she had, that I just shared that document with her of where her and her family could be fed. And as I was thinking about this sermon, it just made me ask the question, how many people that, that, I am, that are currently listening to this sermon right now would have been as grateful as that woman for that document? And my guess is most of us would not. I know I wouldn't be. I, I, I have my needs met. I'm not in a desperate situation for food, so I don't experience the same gratitude that she experiences when someone offers her uh, information on where she can find food. Because I don't see, I'm not in the same desperate situation. I don't experience that type of poverty that she does. I believe for us as followers of God, when we don't see ourselves to be in a desperate situation and then consistently being offered more than we deserve from God, we hinder ourselves from experiencing the joys of true gratitude towards the Lord because we're not poor in spirit. Our sense of entitlement, it hinders us and robs us of joy and it fuels our resentment to God. The poor in spirit are able to walk in a realization that they are receiving a tremendous blessing from God every single day just to be able to know him. There's a few questions that I think are worth us taking the time to ponder over. Do you lack gratitude because you become numb to how desperate your sinful situation is? Do you see yourself as a pretty good person that God saved? Or do you see yourself as someone born into sin that consistently chooses to not follow God and is completely undeserving of every single blessing that God has given you? Are you so spiritually poor that you can consistently delight and enjoy the overflowing fountain of his grace because you know that every day you get to be with Jesus is a day you didn't deserve and it is a display of his unsearchable mercy? If you're a Christian and he's already transformed you and your sins have been forgiven, are you still seeking him desperately as the one you need for you to continue to be changed and transformed and made more like him? Simply put, are you poor in spirit? Do you see yourself as the one in the situation that's just as desperate as the paralytic that Jesus healed, who likely would not be able to work and provide for himself and couldn't do anything for himself outside of the power of God in his life? Do you see yourself as the leper in Luke chapter 5 that Jesus touched? 
the one that the only chance of being able to be made clean and being accepted is if Jesus touches you and heals you and makes you clean. Do you see yourself as the woman of the, with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5 who was willing to push through whatever she had to push through so that she could just touch the very hem of Jesus's garment? Do you see yourself as the woman of the city, the sinner who sits, at, who comes to Jesus's feet broken over her sin and weeps and mourns over her sin and wipes Jesus's feet with her hair? Do you see yourself as Zacchaeus? that's willing to do whatever you have to do to get to Jesus because you know you are desperate for him to continue to change you? Do you see yourself as the tax collectors and the prostitutes right here in this story who, who have heard the call of repentance and know how sinful they are and thus are turning to Jesus and enjoying being welcomed into his kingdom? Are you aware of your sin? I'm not asking if you're aware that you have a few weaknesses or, or if you're aware that you've made a few bad decisions. No, I'm asking you if you are like the, the, the tax collectors and the sinners and know that you have been adversarial to the king of the universe. And if we ever forget these things about ourselves, let us look no further than what happens just a few days later from Jesus standing in this temple, confronting the religious leaders. As he goes to the cross and is condemned for us. Look at Jesus' death on the cross and realize that we all deserve condemnation for our sins. This, this cultivates a, a mindset and a heart posture of being poor in spirit. To know that's what my sin deserves. Death and condemnation and judgment from God. When we look at the cross, we notice that our sin is worthy of condemnation from God himself. But at the same time, when we look at Jesus hung on the cross, we realize that he did that for sinners like us. And we realize that we actually can be saved in him, that even though we're in a desperate situation and worthy of condemnation, we will never experience an ounce of condemnation from God because he took it onto himself. So because of this, the cross actually shows us how, how poor we actually are spiritually, and it shows us that we have eternal riches, spiritual riches in Christ because we will go to be with him forever if we would just embrace the reality that we're all the tax collector, that we're all the sinners. The tragedy in, in the story right here that takes place in the temple is that those that are actually in a desperate situation, it's, it's not that the Pharisees aren't in a desperate situation, it's that the religious leaders, they don't see it. They don't know it. They can't tell that they're in a spiritually desperate situation. They can quote the Bible back and forth, but they're about to kill God himself. They're about to kill and crucify the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They're in the most desperate situation, but they can't see it. But they can't tell. They're unaware of their spiritual sickness and the cross. It, it reminds us, it helps us see just how spiritually sick all of us are. And it reminds us that we can find healing in him. It reminds us that he came to welcome and lavish his grace on those that have a sinful nature, on those that sin over and over again, on those who have set ourselves up against the king of the universe. He took upon himself the sins of all those who are spiritually not good enough. The cross both shows us how bad our sinful condition is, and it gives us the, the ability to be honest with ourselves about how sinful we are because it shows us that we will not be condemned for our sins. The good news for tax collectors and sinners like us is that he died for tax collectors and sinners like us. 
So the encouragement today is to trust him, follow him, seek him as a savior. Because if you seek him as a savior and you understand your spiritual condition, you'll never stop seeking him. You'll never stop coming to him. You'll never stop running to him. If you're seeking him as someone who is poor in spirit and know that he's the only one that can continue to save you from the power of sin over you, you'll continue to run to him. Seek him as savior. Seek him as a thirsty man or a thirsty woman seeks water, as a hungry man or a hungry woman seeks food, and as a sick man or woman seeks a doctor and will continue to enjoy being welcomed into his kingdom. Family, let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Thank you for always caring about us. Thank you for the ways that you have always been there for us as a savior. Father, for those of us who are followers of you, who are your disciples, You've saved us from the guilt of our sin. You, you, you've made us new. You've given us new life in you. And you continue every day to save us from the grip of sin, from the power and, and slavery of sin. Help us to see you as Savior. Not just someone who blesses us in some good ways from time to time, but as Savior, as one who rescues us. And help us to see our need to be rescued. Help us to be more and more living out what you have called us to be in Matthew chapter 5, those who are blessed and those who inherit the kingdom because we are poor in spirit. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.